there is a little it's late there. it's late yeah. that, that one it's is late a, and i'm telling you i don't no, like a 30 second i didn't notice yeah. it until i threw like headphones on and really like sat and listened to it man he must have been using a pick <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong friends, musicians, review classic albums on Robert Dimery's 1001 Albums to Listen to Before You Die. This week, we have myself, Phil. And also Rob. I'm Rob here. Good to be here. Adam's here as well. And I'm Alan. And this week... We're checking out ZZ Top's Trace Ombres. So hopefully you've checked this record out before, you've dug in in the past. But if not, let me tell you, you're going to have a friggin' blast. Because I listened to a couple of these episodes where I didn't actually listen to the album. It's fantastic. It's really, really quite the, the most entertaining hour and change of my week. So <laughs> yeah, That's even better. <laughs> that is a... a, a it's mind- even better when you, don't, you aren't able to disagree with us. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, if you don't already have an opinion, you could definitely just take ours. That's uh, just absorb one from the. Well, at some point we'll have one thousand and one podcasts, so you can just listen to all those instead of going through the the actual list. There you, there you go. Much better use of your time. (laughs) Anyway, so as I said, this week we are digging into ZZ Top's Trace Ombres. So let me set the scene, right? It's 1973. It's Houston, Texas. You're ZZ Top. You're getting ready to make your third album. You fly off to Memphis to work in the same studio, I guess, where Fleetwood Mac had just been working. Although I think in this case, it's actually old Fleetwood Mac. It's pre-Fleetwood Mac, Fleetwood Mac. Ah, yes. Oh, you mean pre-Stevie Nicks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could be wrong about the that. The grand old think, days. Yeah, yeah. I think rumors would have come out after this. So, first of all, I didn't realize ZZ Top had three records. Did you guys, before you dug in, like, I didn't realize that they're... Before this? Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that... I guess I didn't realize because there really aren't any songs on those first two records, right? The first record has the fabulous title, ZZ Top I'm sure, they, I'm sure they would love to hear that. <laughs> it was just silence. I mean, there were songs on them, but... They... <laughs> <laughs> hey, fellas, you you may have just not as well recorded anything. I think you meant hits. You meant hits. <laughs> hits. Hits. Do you Radio hits. Frank or Certified Blues? Because I don't. Shuffle, shuffle <laughs> no, and see, not. baby. <laughs> <laughs> That was the album. The second album was just. Although one of these is called "Just Got Paid," and I feel like I probably should know that. Well, you, like. well hold on. You br- you do bring up right off the bat a good a good point because ZZ Top is so well known. I'll speak for myself first, but you guys can comment. So well known from the '80s MTV Video days as sort of almost cartoon caricatures with the beards. This is pre-beard ZZ '70s ZZ Top, and I right. didn't hear this. I have heard this album before this week. But it's only been in the last maybe five years of my life. Before that, I only knew ZZ Top as the 80s MTV version. So that in that sense, it was a discovery for me. So yeah, was that the everyone else's experience or what were your what was your guys' experience like? 
Yeah, I I, I think my first uh, exposure to ZZ Top was, I think in one of the Back to the Futures, they swing their guitars totally. and they spin. Three. And my dad was like, that's a ZZ Top reference. And I was like, who? And then I obviously learned about them just by existing <laughs> during the 80s and 90s. Yeah, same for me. I uh, I don't know what I was expecting when I listened to this. I, I do think it was the more caricatured, bombastic, you know, legs, all, all that stuff. Um, so I was a little surprised. I didn't realize they had, they were this like OG kind of Southern blues rock for sure. Sure. Yeah, so this, right, right. This record essentially kicks off a period for ZZ Top where they put out a record every 18 months for almost 20 years. From 73, when Trace Hombres comes out, till 91 with, I think it's called like Recycler. They put out a record every 12 to 18 months, right? For, um, for 20 years. And this absolutely encompasses that 80s ZZ Top era, right? And some right. of these records yep. are actually really interesting. Like one of these records when I was, I was checking out like their, their discography, like they have one record, that, the, the record with Tush on it, is a, is is one side live, the other side studio? Really? That, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Many of Fandango. Yeah, yeah, Fandango. Many of the records will have one or two hits, and then you know a, a bunch of pretty out there like southern rock. Um, again, sort of into the the ZZ Top like uh, mythology, but yeah, I mean these guys were these guys were big and incredibly active, right? From that period here, starting in '73 until uh, in one way until the mid '80s, but in a different way until the early '90s. And a a, a quick note um, and some something uh, if you go back and listen to our episode on the zombies the origin story of ZZ Top actually has to do with kind of fronting as though they were a British-based band that they weren't, right? Pre-internet days, some kind of uh, shady promoters convinced these guys to, to go out there as the Texas zombies. And I I get it, right? You're young, you're hungry, you just want to play. I don't care what, you know? I don't care. Oh, Who are we? It's I don't a paycheck, care. I'll man. Play. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm... In, uh, so I'm that, in front of people, so so that's how yeah. the bass player and the drummer met, right? But also, right. you got to remember, Billy Gibbons was in a successful band before ZZ Top. He's the guitar player slash singer, and they had toured with Jimi Hendrix. And I remember even in college, we used to say there was that little factoid going around that the one greatest compliment that had ever been bestowed by guitar god Jimi Hendrix is that he thought Billy Gibbons was the best guitar player he had ever heard. No shit. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, yeah, it's pretty that's awesome. That's high praise, right? Obviously. That's high praise, <laughs> man. That's, 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 yes. What do you think the chances are he says that to everybody? He's like hanging out with someone. He's like, you, you know, know what? I, You're the best guitar player. I have actually heard uh, Hendrix say the same of the original guitarist from Chicago, whose name escapes me, but he died oh, Terry young. Terry Kath. Terry Kath, yes. Yeah, so yeah. I, I heard that he was asked in an interview. Somebody said, like, what's it like being the greatest guitar player in the world? And Hendrix said something like, why don't you go ask Terry Kath? So, nice. so I, I think he, he throws it out there a bit. So I, that's what I like this idea that even though these guys are pretty young, I think I, I don't have their birth dates offhand, but they're in their early 20s when this record comes out even. And this is already their third record at ZZ Top, yep. right? But the fact that this guy, Billy Gibbons, had already toured kind of extensively with such luminaries as Jimi Hendrix and had like a hit song on the radio. The song is called the 99th floor. The band is called the moving sidewalks. 
it's definitely like 60s garage yeah, psychedelia right. kind of thing but they they like toured with the animals the doors jeff beck and eventually opened for hendrix and there was a cool anecdote that i got from the netflix documentary that they the first date they were opening for hendrix and they were they were excited about it. hendrix was still pretty new i think only are you experienced maybe was just out or something but he they were he was still pretty new on the scene and so they were opening for him the first night and they didn't have enough songs to fill the set time so billy gibbons was like okay well let's play purple haze and foxy lady opening for oh, hendrix and he said while they were he said while he was going into like the foxy lady riff at the beginning he looks over to the side of the stage and hendrix is over there grinning at him he's like i like i like your moxie i like this yeah it's ballsy <laughs> that's awesome that is ballsy <laughs> yes very well it makes sense that he came from that pedigree because i feel like blues has always been kind of revolved around like the virtuoso guitar player and then the the sidemen. Um, so that, that checks out. Although, you know, I wouldn't have realized that because it's always been about the band itself and, and not so much about like the Billy Gibbons show. So sure. So this, uh, you're sort of like talking about the blues lead, right? And they talk about this in the doc, right? This is ZZ Top in general are produced by Bill Hand, right? And he had this, this vision of like a really, dry right like straight ahead it should almost sound like live take blues band right and, and that's very much the zz top live bit starting in the early 60s really straight up probably until now can you still see zz top i guess i guess that's up in the air right i guess that's up in the air. no you can you can yeah dusty hill recently died that was one of the reasons we decided to to do this as a little in memoriam he died this year but they have been this is also from the documentary they're quoted as the longest running lineup in rock history. It's the same three guys for 50 years plus. Wow. Playing together. They don't get tired of each other, apparently. But anyway, I, Dusty Hill just died, but I read that he had already decided who his successor would be. It's like his base tech or whatever, a guy that's been touring with him forever. Just as old. <laughs> He's four years younger. Does he than have him. a beard as well? <laughs> I don't know if he has a beard. That's it's funny. That or is his last name beard? Because otherwise he, he right. has no otherwise criteria to be in It's a good point. Well, but I, I like the idea that I don't know if he knew he was going to pass exactly, but he did have an idea. He said, no, the band should continue. And this is the guy that should, it should continue with. That's really cool. Succession planning, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's what any good leg legacy does. Before we get too far off of it, I just want to go back to my sort of first impressions of this record, which didn't come admittedly from this week, but they came from pretty recently in my life because, and I'm sure we'll touch on how ZZ Top are one of those bands, there were a few, where music videos really took them to a new level. Propelled them. Propelled yeah, them right. to a new level, whether it was the beards or the Eliminator car or the spinning guitars, the whole thing. And so you couldn't not know who they were being a child of MTV. And we've, we've talked about us all being child children of MTV in the past. So to me, listening to this record, like I said, for the, maybe the first time, I don't know, less than five years ago, it was, it was a revelation. I immediately was into it. And it was heavier than I was expecting. It was, it was so different than that kind of caricature version from the 80s, which I had learned to accept. And I think is just fine, but not something I would necessarily turn on for myself. This is much more my wheelhouse. And so I was I was just like super excited. It's one of those records. It's, it's that experience you're always hoping to have with a record where you turn it on. It's you've never heard it before. You've never heard the song they're about to play before. Like Phil mentioned, there's really only one 
kind of radio hit on this. It's not the first track. And I was immediately in. Oh, I was yeah. like, oh yes, I'm into this. Rob, I will agree that I, I had a, a wonderful first impression with the, the combo of waiting for the bus and Jesus left Chicago. I, I definitely yeah. totally with you that it sort of pulls you right in. And it also, I think, does a really good job of highlighting something that's like a pretty hip technique that they had. Uh, this is what I was trying to talk about. ZZ Top's first album, right? This this Bill Ham reference in the doc. They talk about how like ZZ Top sound is the hard panned guitar, right? But mm. you don't like, but they're they're paid, yeah. they're played real tight, right? So it's a tight riff and then it sounds really wide. This this album, I think, if you go back and just like I spot checked some of the songs off of, you know, ZZ Top's first album and the second one, it's called like Rio Grande, I want to say. Uh, but with Trace Ombres, you and, and definitely on these first two tracks, you really start to hear Billy Gibbons like playing with that he's not as much like trying to play it tight right and give you that like wide sort of wobble he's sort of starting to fuck with you a little bit like he's starting to skip a note on one side and like mm. you know he, we, you know he, he's playing with that ping pong effect a lot and it's yeah. pretty hip, right and it definitely creates a space which is cool agreed but it's yeah it's kind of subtle mm-hmm. right i was when i was listening to it trying to figure out oh yeah what's going on with this double this is really interesting but they're only a three-piece and then seeing that piece in the dock, not only the hard panned, which supposedly their producer initially was like no overdubs as a rule, which is an insane rule, even especially for a three piece band. Right. <laughs> but, you know, the, the anecdote is that they sent that guy out for ribs in like the next county. And then they and then the engineer was like, all right, well, now we got to do the overdubs, you know. <laughs> but in, in addition to the hard pan, he he claimed he even pulled the guitar strings a little, oh, yeah, out, of a little tune out of tune yeah yeah for the second one right just just like a little bit like pulled on the strings or something but yeah i think that's a really interesting and distinctive sound and it hits you right from the first seconds of waiting for the bus and yet i have to say i think trace Ombre still sounds like a live band it sounds like a really to me uh, so i'm i'm showing my hand here i like this album a lot this sounds like a really great live band eliminator their their later record in the 80s, the one that had Legs and Sharp Dressed Man and Gimme All Your Love and all these huge hits on it that rocked them even, you know, probably to worldwide success and things, definitely does not sound like a live band. So this this right. sounds like just the best band you could hope to hear walking into some bar somewhere in Texas, presumably. You, you just said something that just connected a strange dot for me between like the Trace Ombre sound and like the Eliminator sound, right? Which is like on you know, the early ZZ Top, right? The stuff that's like really guitar driven and sort of guitar awesome, right? It, it has this wide stereo spread and it's still there in the Eliminator stuff. It's just a synthesizer like ping-ponging around. Mm. It's almost like the band has to play inside this synth ping-ponging around, you know? Yeah, Billy Gibbons also definitely changed his vocal approach in that time. He's sure. got a much more of a growl on Trace Ombres and by the time Eliminator comes around, and he's not that much. I mean, he's only 10 years later or something. So it's not like he's an old man, but he does. He sounds older for some reason to me. It, I, I was drawing this parallel. Just maybe you guys will appreciate this. That Eliminator is kind of like the Metallica Black album of ZZ Top. Sure. In that it was sort of the thing that propelled them into the mainstream and got everyone to know them and I'm sure made them all rich. And yet it also felt a little bit like a betrayal of what they were of what they. Yeah. Yeah. I dig that. Yeah. I can see that. I, um, I also, like I said, was not sure what to expect given that like in my mind, 
unfairly or not, probably unfairly, but ZZ Top had entered like Kiss territory in my mind as just the only thing you know them for is this shtick. And, you know, you have to assume there's something good in their catalog. And so, yeah, I, uh, I definitely, you mentioned going into a bar and seeing a band like this. Like I felt through the entire half hour of this album that I was like sitting in a bar in Texas that would have like chicken wire separating the band (laughs) from the audience and that there was a bar fight about to break out. Like it, every note just evoked that scene in my mind. See, that's interesting because I know what you're talking about, but for me, I only feel that way about like half of the songs. Like there are songs like Waiting for the Bus, Jesus Left Chicago. That I don't I don't exactly know what they make me feel like. So there's there there's this whole thing when when you talk about like seeing the the live experience, right? Cause there's a handful that, that I noted on here that are just like you know, just generic blues rock songs with a riff and so you listen to them in headphones but when i picture when i put myself in you know that scene that rob's envisioning where it's like super loud and it's sweaty and there's glasses clinking and it's a live environment i could see myself just being you know head over heels in love with these guys watching them live in a small raw setting um so yeah that's that's interesting to kind of reframe some of the more what i called you know considered generic tunes in that light that yeah i could totally see this so you're saying that bob marley would sound better if i was sitting on a beach drinking champagne out of a coconut (laughs) well wouldn't everything yeah all right good point this would sound a lot better if i was drunk at a bar yeah most stuff would that's why local original music exists right (laughs) to sound better at bars Please go support your local music scene. <laughs> so Alan alluded to it, but this is a tight little record, man. This is a short record. 37? 33? 33. 30, yeah. Oh, they get in man. and get out. And so I did yeah. not, I have to say, I did not get tired of the record, which was right. nice. You could you could argue the other side, which is that it's a little light on content, but I definitely didn't get tired of listening to it. Yeah. Well, I thought it was, so I'm not a huge blues guy. I should just probably put that out there now. I'm not a fan of the genre, you know, but I love the just like no nonsense, no frills, short, tight songs, not super pretentious. You know, it's a little repetitive. I think 12 bar blues over and over again. I don't want to bash the genre, but it's just, I find it a little boring, but I found this specifically because of their really like signature distinct sound to be kind of just a fun, easy listen I think they play a little bit with that format, too. I mean, in some of the songs we're going to talk about in, in a nice way. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. It could get repetitive, and but I think they're pretty they're relatively deft at avoiding that. And of course, also keeping this, the song short. So I think so. there are some things that I think you've, you've just alluded to that are like core to how this record was different from the first two ZZ Top records. I had mentioned that this was recorded in Memphis. That's true, but it has nothing to do with Fleetwood Mac. That was an inverted note. They recorded the first record, uh, their first records in Texas at a studio that Fleetwood Mac had worked in. That's definitely pre-Stevie Nicks Fleetwood Mac. So... Mm. This record is sort of them moving on. This is their third record. They're sort of graduating. And on this record, they've worked with this guy, Bill Ham, on, on really, I don't know at what point they stopped working with Bill Ham, but he produced the first two records and he produces this one as well. But Terry Manning is the engineer on this record. Terry Manning had done Zeppelin. So, you know, at this point, it's 1973. What could he really realistically have engineered? Zeppelin, one, two, three. 
So it was three, three Zepp, th- the Zeppelin had just done three at this place, Ardent Studios in Memphis with Terry sure. Manning. Uh, and supposedly yeah. that was what made ZZ Top go, we want this guy. I don't know if he did the other Zeppelin records or not, or, but I don't, I don't, I think Led Zeppelin did the other two records in England. Yeah. We covered the first one. They definitely did that one in England. So I think it was specifically Zeppelin three, which itself tells a little bit of a story because Zeppelin three is clearly, well, arguably the most experimental Zeppelin album. or certainly a little bit of a departure from the first two. Right. So maybe sure. that was also what ZZ top were looking for. And I think they get, Maybe experimental is not quite the right word, but I think there's a couple tracks on here that almost have a, a prog feel and some interesting stuff yeah, to them, right? Sure, definitely, so, definitely. So let's actually let's actually jump into some of the songs. I, you know, there are ten songs on this record, right? I'd actually like to jump into the first two together. It's only going to run about six minutes. Can we listen to "Waiting for the Bus" into "Jesus Left Chicago"? So that was Waiting for the Bus and Jesus Left Chicago, the first two tracks off of Trace Ombres. Adam, what did you think? Let's, let's, let's kick it to you. So that transition is really nice, even though it's, it's a different key. Yeah. But it just, it just works. And I, I can't exactly figure out why, but it just works. But, but for Waiting for the Bus, we'd, we'd mentioned a couple minutes ago, the the stereo guitar where they don't exactly match and this is a, a great example in in this tune so right out of the gate really nice headphones helps on this but you can hear even some like dead notes oh, yeah. in the in the right channel where it's just like you can almost hear like, like ghost notes just the pick yeah it's just the pick noise you know and so it's just it's a really nice a really nice start coming coming out of the gate there with those two so i Definitely dig There's that. There's probably a whole like history of that technique. Like we touched on it a little during the Zeppelin one, right? There's, there's this is sort of all over Zeppelin one. This sort of like double tracked spread, you know. And here four years later, you've got it evolving in a way now, right? Where now you've got now you've got guys sort of like consciously screwing with it instead of right. trying to play mm. it real tight and just make it sound beefy, right? So I definitely think that's the hippest part of waiting for the bus. 
There was also something in uh, Jesus uh, Left Chicago. As he's going into the solo, he does this super dissonant triad that's really jarring, and he keeps hitting it. So when he eventually stops and actually goes into the yeah. solo, it's like a really, yeah, it's just, it, it's very cool. Very cool. Let's, yeah, let's actually, let's drop that in. So can we talk for a second about why that transition works? I have to say that if we're just building, if I'm building my perfect new brand new album I haven't heard before experience, it's got to start strong and hook me in, which Waiting for the Bus absolutely does. They get a hell of a lot out of those three, that three note hook with the rhythm of it and the panned guitars and everything you said. But then the fact that I'm really in when they hit that transition, you're like, oh, yes. I'm hanging on. Right. I'm hanging on now. I'm now. I'm really in, and now now I'm I'm Before now I'm locked in my did seat. Did they get some kind of weird key change in waiting for the bus too? I feel like they do. There's some kind of like I don't, I don't think waiting for the bus. Is that in Jesus left Chicago. Oh, th- sorry. Waiting for the bus has a key change. Yes. Yeah, yeah. In, but, in like the jam section. But hold on. Let's yeah, let's let's solo. go back to that for a second. Yeah, because I, I did a little breakdown of that. But the, I think the reason the transition works and is really interesting because it is waiting for the bus is in A minor. And Jesus Left Chicago is in G, right? Mm -hmm. But the way they transition into it is the very first chord in Jesus Left Chicago is the four. So it's kind of like a CG thing. And I think literally, if you're like, if you're playing on the piano, what you're doing is like holding that G in the bass and doing that thing where you jump up to the C and E, Uh that that little like four one kind of movement. So Mm -hmm. I just think that has the way of like pulling you into the key really effectively because the C and the E are right there in the A minor chord. Then it pulls you into that G thing. That plus they teased a G, you know, they did key change to G for a little while in the solo section of Waiting for the Bus, which I thought was one of the more interesting things they did in that song. It's a simple three note riff. They go through the one, four, five blues changes, but then they get you to a point where you're expecting that four chord to come up, but instead they drop to the seven chord. And you're like, oh, what's going on? And this is in the solo section, right? They, yeah, they right. From the A to the G instead. And what's nice about it is that it resolves back down farther to the five. So now you're back to the E and now you're back in the key. It was a really, like, I'm going to steal that. That was a great little trick. <laughs> yes, totally, totally. Definitely thinking like 
I just might want to start straight up do doing waiting for the bus. Like, it's <laughs> <laughs> like that's a great tune. So going back to the transition, I don't know if I'm the only one that read this, but like, apparently that was accidental. That was like a splicing mistake. So those two songs were not meant to be paired together, but wow. they, it, it's, it was like the happiest accident ever because that drop is tight. I read it wasn't really a mistake. Somebody just said it, you know, like that. Well, kids, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. That's on that's the, the lesson here. Well, either way, <laughs> media literacy. I don't think it was that common, especially not in this in this genre, to try to connect two songs like this. So I think we can say for sure they weren't written to connect. Yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure I that's, that's true. true. Yeah, they work really well together. It almost reminded me of like. You know, that Sneaking Sally Through the Alley album where it's got that like mini song suite at the beginning where mm -hmm. it all just flows really nice. It was super cool. One thing I will, I do have one no though, and maybe we can drop this in because it's only like a second of material. Am I the only one that at about the minute and 57 mark of waiting for the bus, I think there's a mistake. I think the bass comes in like a little late. I mean, it's, it's possible I'm the only one that, that heard that. But I'm almost positive that there's like a base <laughs> mistake. Let's, Let's take a listen. Yeah. No overdubs and no punches, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> There is a little. It's late. There. It's late. Yeah. That that one yeah. is late, a, and I'm telling you, I don't. By like a thirty second. I didn't notice it yeah. until I threw like headphones on and really like sat and listened to it. Damn, he must have been using a pick. <laughs> was the last time he ever did that <laughs> how dare he god rest god rest his soul that's well maybe it's part of that live feel you know long ago i always cite this I, I can't remember what the book is called but it was some book about the neuroscience of music and one of the things that really stuck out to me about it was they said that what you experience neurologically as a really tight groove is actually representative of a lot of micro deviations from the beat so maybe, maybe it's a stretch to relate this particular incident to that. But the idea that that's why this neuroscientist was saying that's why we can tell when it's a drum machine versus a real drummer on like right. Stevie Wonder's Superstition. He's really in, but they're micro deviations. Well, that's where that idea brain. of like playing in front of the beat or behind the beat, if you're a bassist yeah. specifically, because you can you can play around with that and still be in time, but it changes the feel. There's also uh, there's sort of a boutique. There, there's, a, there's a desire to purchase a certain era of analog drum machine, like these like Lynn drum machines and early Boss drum machines, because they don't keep perfect time. They mm. keep really even time, but they're not perfect. Like like I'm gonna call like, my you know, dad. Like, people and want get the, that, right? Like apparently. <laughs> Do you remember the drumulator yeah, my dad had? <laughs> yeah. No, that was the Elisis. The uh, drumulator was this like three by three blue steel box that had like these little buttons on it yeah, and it was like amazing. one of the one of the original commercially available is that the same uh, conglomerate that that created the albinator by chance i think so <laughs> i think that it is the 
How about the fact that people are going on eBay for thousands of dollars and buying a drum machine that doesn't keep time? I know plenty of drummers who can't keep <laughs> That's time. That's the most hipster shit I've ever heard. <laughs> it's not that it can't keep time, Rob. It's that it's not perfect. So okay. you can sense, you can subtly sense. Here's a thousand dollars. Can you play out of time? <laughs> sure. I know. I know a couple not perfect guys. Give me the version where the drummer has <laughs> drank six beers instead of five, because that'll really right, right. spice can things you, up. Can you turn them back down to five beers? <laughs> That's actually wait. That's a great idea, Phil. You should you should roll with that. The, yeah, you have, you have the, the knob says how many beers. <laughs> the drummer has had. Yes. <laughs> that's really funny. All right, so I know that we're supposed to jump to Master of Sparks as our next track, right? But I I really think we should also just briefly touch on beer drinkers and Hellraisers. It, it, let's let's just give that a quick. Sp- a quick spin. We might even peel out of it after a moment. Let's just give beer, track three, Beer Drinkers and Hellraisers, a, a, a quick run. I hope we got at least like 45 to 60 seconds in. <laughs> guys, guys, I, I like this record a lot. I think the first two tracks are good. I think the next song, I'm going to burn it now. Master Sparks is awesome. Beer Drinkers and Hellraisers is terrible. <laughs> this is like the worst kind of Ted Nugent. Like, yeah, Delta. I, like, like this is like, th- like this is just throwaway, right? Like every record has filler, but like this isn't my like, like I don't, I don't, I, I don't really like lock in with this genre. So like their filler is like the worst filler. This is, this is garbage. But the, the nuanced worst. title didn't like pull you in. <laughs> oh, they didn't even try. This uh, so this is title first songwriting at its best. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, wouldn't it be great next time we're at that bar? Yeah, man. I had so the can of dinner. That's just a great line. <laughs> I had I, I just wrote mediocre rock song on this but but this one drives me to i have this vision in my head because you've got the jesus song and then you've got these beer drinkers you know kind of womanizer southern beard kind of uh caricature and it reminded me when uh growing up catholic i would go to church and there was always this family where the dad would wear a big johnson (laughs) shirt do you remember those shirts yes they were like they were like you know (laughs) They were always like erection jokes. Like I remember you could get them at you know, Goldberg f- fishing <laughs> with a right, fishing with a big. But like that was my like when I heard uh, beer drinkers and Hellraisers, I immediately went back there and like yeah, I guarantee that guy listens to ZZ. <laughs> this is the perfect springboard, <laughs> given what you just said, as well as what Rob just said about title first songwriting. So if you if we were to jump to 1981's El Loco by ZZ Top, we would find. Just, just absolutely oh. terrible. The second single. Bring it on. The second single let me, of the let me record hear some is of them. called Tube Snake Boogie. <laughs> track three is called Ten Foot Pole. Uh, track one on side two is called It's So Hard. Let's keep wow. going. Track two, side two, Pearl Necklace. Guys, you're not. Good God. Even 
Holy this Christ. is gross. <laughs> You're not this, even trying. This is you guys got to be pushing fifty at this point. Like maybe it's definitely one, uh, one bourbon, one scotch, one beer territory. But, it, but they're they're but all worse. jokes, man. You're right, exactly. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Are you saying dudes. you don't like one bourbon, one scotch, and one beer? How dare you? I mean, look, I'm the one that lives in Delaware here, so well, and Phil, so I can still claim thorough right. good, but uh, no, I, I don't like that. Oh, poor uh, George. Disagree. I mean, it's funny. <laughs> yeah, beer drinkers, Hellraiser is not good. Wait, does he say box of wine after that can of dinner line? Is that true or not? Or did I just Ooh. imagine that? Can of dinner and a box of wine sounds like it goes. That's no, it's, um, it's some, with my some. can of dinner and a bunch of fine. Somehow. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Just go ahead and rewrite that for him. Yeah. Get Franzia in there and get an endorsement. Yeah. So, like, how do you guys square this? How do you guys square this in general, just on this record and in life? These, these like. This one wasn't in, as offensive. I mean, it's certainly nothing compared to the Giants of the first two tracks or some of the stuff that's coming. It's a throwaway. I agree. But I didn't find it as offensive, to be honest, as you just made it out to be. You're entitled to a couple. I mean, maybe right? a couple maybe, throwaways. Maybe you are going to feel just. Maybe you're going to feel this way about other tracks. I mean, the, the, right. look, it's it's it's, not, <laughs> it's not my it's not my low light. It, it's probably my low light, but I mean, it's it's fucking Southern blues. You know, I I don't know what you're really expecting. I think there's a you know this isn't like Almond Brothers who are are going to take you on a on a journey here. Like this is just kind of basic bar Texas fucking roadhouse rock. Yeah. Having man, said that, that some, song's fucking terrible. There's some, <laughs> <laughs> there some pretty low context uh, Southern diss in there. Look, <laughs> how could they be expected to come up with anything better than this? <laughs> hey, do, I, no, no, no. You tell me you think Southern rock, Southern blues rock. Well, you know what? Let's move on. Who's even in that category? You just mentioned the Almond Brothers, and I agree that the Almond Brothers are great. How dare no, you? I love the Almond Brothers. No, well, t- well, Phil brought up Ted Nugent, and I think Skinner. Ted Nugent's from I Detroit, put, dude. Well, <laughs> how dare you call him Southern Rock? You telling me he hasn't been claimed by the South? <laughs> well, I mean, okay, fine. Yeah, Skinner. Skinner yeah, thirty-eight special. Th- that shit. I don't. I've never. That's, we're, bad, yeah. we're bad company on this list. They're like Although British, they're dude. Right. <laughs> they're British. Yeah, that makes no sense we'll, to me. <laughs> we'll have another argument about Skinner on another episode because I'm a huge fan of those early, uh, those early albums. Does that include "Ooh, That Smell"? Okay, that's a terrible song. <laughs> worst song I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> yeah, that's like their third probably hit. Right, their biggest. I don't know, man. There were some rough tracks on that Beaches record. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Well, we're in a different category altogether here with that. That's. I would rather right, Phil, reel it in, Phil. Right, get us get, back, get on, back track on track here. Yeah. Okay, all right, cool. all right. So you know, <laughs> ZZ Top just wastes three minutes and twenty five seconds of everyone's life with beer drinkers and Hellraisers. It's ten percent of the record, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then we jump into track four, Master of Sparks. So let's let's let that one. Hell work. yeah.
we're back. So let's kick this one to uh, let's kick this one to Alan first. Alan, what are your uh, what were your, what were your first thoughts on Master of Sparks? I, I'll be a little bit of a, of a broken record in terms of my already shared perspective on blues. I think it's crass to say something is boring. You know, I'd like to come up with a better, more artful term than that, but I just felt like it was kind of boring. It was a little dark, which kind of set it somewhat apart from like the rest of the album. You know, I'd like the, you know, kind of tight drum, tight rhythm uh, intro, but eh, I just, I didn't really, I didn't really feel much. What about you, Adam? So I feel like, uh, when I first heard this, I thought that uh, somehow ZZ Top had gone and grabbed an unwritten Queens of the Stone Age song mm. and brought it back like 35 years and then covered it. I thought it was cool. I thought it was a standout on the album. Uh, I, I laughed when I first, second or third time through, because I first listened to it and I some of the lyrics are a little garbled. But the overall story, he's saying, you know, we, we were drunk, we were in the back of a truck, I almost saw my life end. And at the very end, I thought he said, the master of sparks is God. And I was like, whoa, this is religious, right? Like the master, of the spark of life and everything. And then I read that it was a story about him and his buddies would get drunk. They welded together like a six-foot steel sphere and then welded in like an old pickup truck car seat. They would drive down the road at 50 miles an hour and kick it out the back of the of the pickup truck, and somebody was inside of it, and it would spark down the road. This is the most wow. redneck <laughs> yeah. and a polar opposite of like heavy god lyrics. So I I laughed out loud when I read what the song was I mean, actually there's, about. There's no I still way love drinking it, and welding. I still love it. <laughs> You know, can't end well. It, it only. It's the most insane story in the world. So, so the sparks come from when the sphere hits the ground and they almost die. I get it. I thought I thought he said God too. It, sometimes I purposely don't look at the lyrics of these songs because it, it does kind of bump me a little bit. But that that is what I thought he was saying. I thought this was kind of the most proggy modern song in the record, as Adam just said. The band it really reminded me of another '70s band that I think is way underrated is Thin Lizzy. Specifically, the Thin Lizzy song Warriors on Jailbreak really reminded me of that that groove. I, I thought it was great. I think Master Sparks would make a great ZZ Top cover band name. If anyone out there is looking <laughs> to start one of those up. Deep cuts. Yeah, right. Rob gets 1% of all uh, <laughs> door charges. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I thought this song was cool too. I thought this this was probably the standout on the record for me. Um, I, I definitely, you know, I, I had been exposed to Jesus Love Chicago before. Obviously, I've heard track eight Lagrange before in my life. So this was the one that that yeah, the, both the riff and the story and something about the production. This was one that maybe like you get back to that sort of like Led Zeppelin three like is it. Ardent Studios, yeah, Ardent yep. Studios. Like, there, there's something to the production of this that I just thought was a little bigger, right? Like, you know, there's like, yeah, there's some kind of tremolo or Leslie guitar in there. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's, it's a wider sound. Yeah, I can't listen to the song and not think of a Budweiser commercial. I, I just feel like that's it, where it where it lives now. Um, having said that though, it's, it's, it's a great song. I think we've all heard this a million times. The, uh, yeah, the kind of comically gravelly voice, the ha ha ha, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know. It's a little, 
I mean, oh, we're talking about we're talking about some... Lagrange now. Did I miss something? Oh, I thought you Did said move on. I feel you started talking about Lagrange, didn't you? I said Lagrange. You maybe like or did one of those zone out things. No, no, no. I thought that was your. I thought that was the, the transition. I thought you were like segueing. Oh. Um, wasn't really a segue. No. Well, now it is. <laughs> or if you want to just like take this part, like if you want to lift and shift. No, 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 no. Why yeah. is it bad to be in a Budweiser? I mean, I still like Lagrange. I, I get it. I understand yeah. that I've heard it a bunch of times, but it's good. It's a well-produced, well, no, that's little ditty of a song. It deserves to be recognized. Well, that's what I was getting getting at until I was called out for jumping the the song order. Um, <laughs> Phil, you monster! Which this is the way a blue set would go. So I'm I'm all right with with the uh, dude. It's right. jazz. Yeah. It's jazz. You got to be ready for anything, right? When Phil's running the show. So I was saying, having said that. It's a really cool song. It's by far the the mo- the catchiest song, the one that kind of sticks with you afterwards. I feel like that. Th- I don't know if it's like double stops or you know I'm not a guitar player. I don't know what that we would call that riff. Um, but it's it's killer. It's legendary. Stolen, I think yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so we should probably play in case you've been living under a rock for your entire life and have never <laughs> listened to rock radio or Budweiser commercials. <laughs> you should probably drop in Lagrange, a little bit of Lagrange right now. I think it's a good song. I don't like hating on things because they're famous just for the record. It's a little played, of course. It's so one of the things I looked into, like all like so much blues, it is potentially stolen from John Lee Hooker, specifically the ah ha 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 thing is in a John Lee Hooker song called Boom Boom. But interestingly, the groove the lawsuit was filed by the estate that holds the license for John Lee Hooker's other song called Boogie Chillin'. It was a, basically a lawsuit on the groove itself, but the judge eventually ruled that the groove was in the public domain. That's that's a quote. The groove is not in the heart. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the public domain, Creative Commons. Right. Yeah, it's good. But so it, I, here's another like connection, though. Interestingly, I, I listened to that John Lee Hooker song, and I didn't I didn't hear the connection as much. You're talking about a one, three, four riff like i mean that's been in a lot of songs right but what it does sound more like is this old slim harpo song called shake your hips which you guys might know is because the stones covered it on exile so if you listen to the stones version of shake your hips on exile on main street that sounds a lot like lagrange so maybe maybe consider that as truly stolen yeah, I, I sort of have, I, I'm, I feel like I'm with the judge. I feel like the judge made a good decision here. I feel like, uh, just like a, a riff like this is just public domain. Uh, I, I, I would, I would, I think you could make an argument that something like hot for teacher is 
the required amount of embellishment to say this is this is mine now, right? <laughs> like you can't just put hot for teaching wow. a Pepsi commercial, right? I think that's I, I think you have to go that far with a blues riff to say it's Well I think we talk about this riff. with uh with the Iggy Pop album where you know, it opens with that like iconic drum beat that a lot of people say was stolen by that band Jet later on. But I mean it's just a beat. You know, these beats show up, chord patterns show mm-hmm. up, like you know, I think there there's obvious theft and then there's Hey, there's these are just phrasings that we all use. Yeah, it's not like that yesterday, like you know, F major to A dominant seven. You know, like hold on. <laughs> I want to. We got to draw a line here between what Jet did with Lust for Life and what we're talking about here. They might both be morally similar, let's say, but you can't just take a massively hit song like Lust for Life, which has been in all the same Budweiser commercials, by the way, and pretend you're not intimately familiar with it. Right. And speaking of yesterday, right, Paul McCartney always says about yesterday, oh, I dreamed the melody. I woke up and I I was hesitant to even start writing the song because like, it must be something else. I must have stolen that. Right. He'd spend some time doing that check. And if you're a songwriter, right, we've probably all done some version of that in our mind. So you cannot tell me that Jet was not familiar with Lust for Life. That is BS. Well, of course they were familiar with it, but I don't think what I'm saying is you don't have a patent on that beat. You just don't. It's a beat plus chords, man. Plus a melody. I mean, if you can call that a melody, I suppose. I, I disagree on the melody, but <laughs> hey, we can uh we can, you know, throw hands over uh beers at a all Texas right, bar right. sometime. So we've 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 gotten into the, the standard debate as to whether or not like basically where where does thievery begin and where does art end right and i think we all agree that lagrange is not thievery agreed or or if it is thievery it's this sort of commonplace thievery that we we just we've decided has to be wait also by the way i just want to add that iggy pop beat was stolen from fucking motown okay let's let's not let that go unchecked that was a motown beat that existed Across genre stealing is more tolerable uh, to me. All right, right. All right. Wait, so, wait, one more. So wait, one more tidbit about Lagrange. We got to mention that they're talking about a whorehouse, and apparently Dusty right. Hill went to this whorehouse when he was 13 years old. Oh my god! <laughs> quite, quite a different time, and oh. apparently it was shut down shortly after the song premiered, which ZZ Top were pretty bummed out about. But it's the same establishment of ill repute that is being referenced in the musical and film Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, starring Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds. So I'll give that a spin. Wow. Wow. Hey, that's how you get immediate street cred. You roll up there when you're 13. <laughs> I just want to say that the pinch harmonics in the, uh, in the solo of LaGrange changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> you mean Can we get earlier a- in life or now? Yes. No, no, earlier in life. Although the first time I had ever heard a pinch harmonic was actually an Eagles song, Already Gone. Hmm. This little note at the end there, but then ZZ Top just owned and really ran with the with the pinch harmonics in the solo here. Yeah, let's, I, let's, let's drop those in.
harmonics are pretty sweet. Uh, Delicious. Yeah, and he really nails them, right? So, I mean, great call, great call calling those out. You know, I was try- I dug in a little trying to find out, like, if there was any history on the recording of this song specifically. Uh, I didn't find anything, but I didn't have a chance to rewatch the documentary before we recorded uh, tonight. It was, was there anything about this song or this guitar tone specifically in the documentary? No. The, the only thing I read... Uh, you know, the only thing that I, I did watch the rewatch the documentary kind of scanned it. They talked about the them wanting to go to the studio because of Zep three. They didn't talk about this song specifically, other than that it was their first kind of major breakthrough hit, and that it was about the the whorehouse. But they did mention that part of what they were they were fueled on maybe it was around the time this record got a little bigger was that there was a review by the Village Voice. We've gotten away from reading reviews, right? But the Village Voice apparently said that ZZ Top has a sound like hammered shit. <laughs> <laughs> And that, and that really annoyed them. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to sound like shit, you might as well uh, be hammered. That's like title first reviewing. They had right. they came up with hammered <laughs> shit, and they're like, we got to write a review around this. <laughs> a couple other, I mean, a couple other tidbits. So it's like kind of out of that, they one of the things that came out of this tour or out of this record and, and sort of into the next phase of ZZ Top that I thought was interesting was they decided as a publicity measure to lean into Texas as a concept. And they were talking about how in the seventies, it was pre any sense, like Texas was just considered a backwater. It was its own almost country within the United States. I mean, yeah. you could argue it kind of still is, but there wasn't a big sort of cottage industry of talking about Texan things. They were saying that they're, so they ended up launching this big tour called the Texas worldwide tour or something where they took rodeo animals on the tour and they played on a stage that was like the shape of the state of Texas and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah. And they really like leaned into it. And it, I think it gave them an identity They're, They call themselves the little old band from Texas, which maybe started out as a diminutive, but they sort of adopted it. And they credit that with really helping bring, they were like, you know, in New York city, you couldn't buy a cowboy hat. In 1973, and then flash forward to 1976. Now you got, now it's like a thing. You know? Did they also hire that guy Dallas Austin, who did those TLC records for some more Texas <laughs> credibility? I'll exactly. send myself out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so one, one more one more note about these guys I thought was funny from the documentary. I, I, one of the things I love when I watch documentaries, I do think it's a fun documentary if you're interested in, in bands and ZZ Top overall, or even just bands in general. I always watch to see what people are wearing when they're being interviewed because you have to remind yourself this is their they got to prepare for this. Uh-huh. They didn't just the documentary didn't just catch them coming out of bed or something. Like they it's not an ambush interview, it's right? Not an like ambush. It was on the books. They yeah, right. Thoroughly right. prepared. So <laughs> so Dusty Hill, the bass player, one of the bearded guys, and Billy Gibbons, the other guy, they're both wearing sunglasses throughout the entire interview. Inside, of course, right? Billy Gibbons, we we haven't even mentioned his hat yet. Are you guys familiar with his weird hat thing that looks like a sea urchin or something? He wears it 100% of the time. 100% of the time. Apparently, it, it was a, some kind of gift from like a tribal chief in Cameroon or something. But he is seriously not photographed without this hat. But in, But what I thought was great was in the documentary, he's wearing that hat. And then over top of it, he's wearing another hat, like a cowboy hat. <laughs> God, I gotta look this gotta up. Get a hat for his hat. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know you could take off it. Hey, shut up. <laughs> you know, Rob, you you sort of inadvertently, like while you were talking, 
my brain was going like, Rob is making the best argument for wearing all black always, right? Like, like why should I always wear black pants and a black t-shirt? Because it will always not look that weird. It's just like sometimes I remember watching Tiger King in during the pandemic or whatever, and they're interviewing the the boyfriend, the guy with like missing teeth or whatever, it's like one tooth, and he's there shirtless the whole time. And it's like <laughs> this is not an accident. He planned for this. This is how he wants to be known by the world. Or is he really putting that much thought into it? To be honest, <laughs> unclear. Unclear. So, sorry, last last little tidbit from the documentary is that at some point they did have to take a, a little break because I guess they went through all this touring. They were popular. This is before the 80s rise to stardom thing and kind of even what gave rise to the beards. They all took a break. And these three guys, they just need a break from each other from the band. Right. So they take a little hiatus. The drummer goes and gets sober. Pretty classic rock and roll story. Billy Gibbons goes to India to get enlightened. Also kind of classic. Dusty Hill, the bass player, he goes and works at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> for like a year <laughs> like the houston airport did they have the beards at this point no apparently they came back together after like a year or so of being apart and the two guys had serious beards and they were like oh crap like this is serendipity we got to roll this with our this. meal ticket and the drummer had a the drummer had a little beard but not nearly enough and he was like ah screw it i'm out What's worked at the airport? What's hilarious? <laughs> is he like an air traffic controller or is he like working one of the kiosks? I think he was like Probably a baggage. baggage. He was like a baggage yeah, check say, guy. He, well, what's yeah. hilarious is the two guys that grew giant Gandalf beards were the guy who went to India to find enlightenment and the dude who tossed bags. And then the third dude just named Beard, right? right. So, that's his out. Not the drug addict. I'm sure they were all drug addicts at some point, yeah. to be fair. <laughs> to be fair. All right. What's the last track on this? Let's, let's, let's move this along. Yeah, yeah. What is the last track we're doing? Uh, I, mean, I believe it's Precious and Grace. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. See, this is why we got confused because this is out of order. Okay. Let's, let's, so this is the track right before LaGrange. All right. So let's, let's let that rip real quick. I think this song rips. It gives me that same like master of sparks. Like there's a little more to it, both in the writing and the production. This feels like a real song as opposed to some of the other sort of throwaway beer drinkers and hellraisers. Rob, where, where are you at on this one? So this, I agree. This might be the most experimental track on the record, which is not saying a lot for a blues based record, but they were trying some things. It also sounds kind of modern. We kind of touched on it before the call, really, before the recording started. But this sounds like something that Alan and Phil would play in their band currently to me. It's got the it's got a heavy riffage. It's got a little chromatic descending riff that leads out into sort of a decidedly unbluesy part, kind of a funky, weird, not funky, but like a weird bridge that doesn't fit with the rest of the song. That reminds me of Phil's writing style in particular. <laughs> 
it's 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 the most decidedly un, it's the biggest deviation from blues i think on the sure. record so it stood out to me for that reason i don't think it's a exactly what i would call a standout track but i appreciated these little interruptions from one four five so i liked it yeah I, this is my favorite song on the track i thought it was a it was a ripper um you mentioned uh, 70s band Thin Lizzy earlier. The band that I immediately thought of when I when this song started playing was Black Sabbath, who I also think mm. um, it, it inadvertently has influenced Mega in ways that are very unintentional. Uh, but I think like the really just like the heavy kind of stoner doom riffs, uh, you know, awesome. I thought it um, it sounded like they were playing around with timing a little bit, even though they weren't. But just the way some of the drum accents were, the guitar solo was just like on fire you know just just a straight ripper i was i was into it the, the guitar solo also does dip into some like Dwayne allman territory i i think it's slide it might just be like a lot of bending but just you know almonds have come up the sort of southern rock thing mm. there's definitely a, he definitely plays slide a decent yeah, bit i mean yeah. when i've seen the videos of billy gibbons playing yeah i think he wears it on his middle finger though to me that's always weird the yeah, slide i mean they're all weird to me <laughs> What'd you think, Adam? Yeah, I was I was ho hum on this one. This one didn't jump out to me. I I felt it was a bit generic. Although hearing you guys kind of describe why you feel it jumped out of the realm of kind of your standard blues a little bit makes me brings a, a little more appreciation to it. Uh, I thought the vocals were deliberately odd, and they were a bit grating. Some, something about it bothered me. His intonation and his inflection, like he, he turned it up a little bit. It feels artificial. Like he he was he took his normal thing and said, "Let me let me really go, you know, far right with it." But yeah, it was all right. Did didn't do a ton for me. Well, Adam, you're wrong. <laughs> Your opinion <laughs> is wrong. Well, there. You, all right, let's. <laughs> all right, that's had enough of those. Bring it on home. <laughs> Let's vote. Let's vote. Uh, So there's one thing I want to point out before we jump to the vote. I do think that this record, you notice it in the actual layout of the record. You see how pre-CD, when it really was vinyl, when everything was vinyl, you really could sneak in junk, right? I don't mean junk. I just mean songwriting and and production that was of much lower quality than other songs. You can call it junk. That's all right. Yeah, sure. So Waiting for the Bus into Jesus Left Chicago is like just a ripping six to seven minutes. On a record that's 33 minutes long, that's awesome, right? Master of Sparks, also a ripping like three and a half minutes. There are three, that's songs one, two, and four on side one. Beer Drinkers, Hellraisers is terrible. Hot, Blue, and Righteous. It's sort of a throwaway. It's kind of mellow. I think you know what that song's about. Right? I think that's that's the nothing else matters of this of this <laughs> yeah. uh, album. You know, like they got to have a slow song. It was fine. Yeah, sure. And in the position of last on a side, it makes sense, right? Yeah, it's easy sure. to sort of throw it away there like that, right? Uh, turn the, okay. You know what I mean? Yep. You, you you turn the record over. Move me on down the line. That one actually doesn't ring a bell. Low light. My low, low light. light. That okay. is such. It, because it's so stock, just to quote Metallica <laughs> documentary now. It's so boring. That to me is Southern rock. It almost belongs on the Eric Clapton 461 <laughs> record. It's just stock. That okay. did not fit. To me, that did not fit at all with the rest of the songs. Maybe in context, it was a little more exciting or something, but it was it was boring by the standards of the rest of the records. They didn't they never hit into a groove. Yeah, that was that was low to me. And I'm just realizing now as you're mentioning that it was track one of side two that was a terrible decision easy top 
<laughs> You're off the list just for that alone. But maybe they felt comfortable doing it because they know they're backing it up with seven minutes of Precious and Grace followed by LaGrange. Right, so now you're deep into the record. Again, Have You Heard is sort of soft, if I recall. Yeah. Right, so again, it sort of like wraps up the same way Side One does. Chic is not good. But I feel like it's more of a failed experiment than, than anything. How do you not, I guess I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, how do you not start the side with LaGrange? That's such a missed opportunity, guys. Sorry, what was your point, Phil? <laughs> <laughs> My point is that because of the side one, side two format, you were able to release 10 songs when you really only have five, right? And, and get away with it, right? Well, welcome uh, to the music industry. Yeah, yeah, sure. I just think it's much harder to do this now, right? I'm surprised people, I guess people don't release records in the same way, but like, why, why, would, you re- re- why would you record anything but a concept record now? That's a different question, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, you know. but to that end all right rob with all all that said you want to vote let's vote let's kick it off with you rob what do you think on zz top's trace ombres do you need to listen to this before you die absolutely yes it's a resounding yes for me i like this i like this brand of rock riff based rock music i think they do riff rock well they do a lot with a little in that sense, they're a little like ACDC. I'm talking about Bon Scott ACDC, to be clear, who I also have a soft spot for. And if nothing else, you must listen to this record to wash away the taint from 80s ZZ Top to get that out of your mind and to understand what these guys are really about. So, yes. I was vacillating for a minute because in my head, if more than half your albums are that 80s terrible thing, isn't that who you've become? <laughs> It's not like the 80s sound was an accident. But in Rob's defense, I am going to say you should listen to this because this is an interesting view into what a transition you can make as a band uh, to hear kind of before they went mainstream. Uh, so it's it was a breath of fresh air from kind of the corny stuff. Uh, so it's a yes for me. Yeah, I'm going to say yes as well. I think the first time I listened to it, I was prepared to say no, just because, again, I I don't love this genre. Um, But as I kept listening to it, I think for what they're trying to do, they really crushed it. And I think that that counts for a lot. I also, the fact that this isn't their only album on the list, I think they sort of can straddle both of those eras with with their coverage on the list. Um, But I think representing this part of their career and the fact that this just feels really authentic and... Plus, it's a it's only a half hour long, so you know your time's not not that valuable. You got thirty minutes. Let's go. Uh, yeah, definitely on the list. Yeah, so I think that's going to make a sweep. I also think this should be on the list for the main reason that I, I do. Authentic's a great word. I think this feels like like the real ZZ Top, right? The three records in this sounds like the sort of early sound of the band, Dream Realized. Um, whatever that dream was, it feels like it's realized here. And there's definitely, you know, four or five tracks on here that are really cool and give you, uh, I think, a clear look into the 70s guitar rock thing that was happening simultaneous to other very hip things happening in the early 70s. Excellent. So that is a yes for ZZ Top's Trace Ombres. Uh, on the list of 1001 albums you've got to listen to before you die. That's, uh, 
I think I'm surprised. I'm also surprised Jimmy Page didn't come up, but we'll just we'll move on. Clapton did though, and that's we'll live with you know, all we can hope for each episode. Right. <laughs> sure, sure. All right, cool. So what's uh, what's next, Rob? Rob, do you have the? I feel like you're you're the kind of guy that can can keep me organized. What's what's well, next? Well, with Conjure up Sad, for tonight. Yeah, sadly, with the Albinator uh, having exploded at some point in time in the last uh, couple weeks, I can't really remember what era we're in right now. I instead have downloaded the the Albinator app version, so we'll see how that works. It was it was the free Freeware. edition, so there's a lot, there's a lot of ads I got to get through here. But yeah, let's let's see if we uh, give this virtual wheel a, a spin here right now. Let's see what we're doing next week, and it is ooh, this is a departure. Iron Maiden, oh shit, their self titled album. All right. The first metal album that we've we've had Indeed come it up is. in here, I think, and it wasn't the Arby's metal album. Right, it is not. I not definitely the Arby's do concept not know this record or really anything about Iron Maiden except Same. screeching high vocals. Same going I, in, going in fresh. I know a couple of the yeah, I know a couple of the hits um, that I'm sure you guys too too. But uh, yeah, not Where are deep they in from? the catalog by any means. So. They're British. Uh, they're in England. Huh. UK based band. It's a very yeah, intense name. We can say that. <laughs> yes. The only thing I know about yes. them is like when I used to play rock band, the video game, that this was like my Mount Everest on drums. The uh, oh. Run for the Hills. <laughs> Actually, right? Oh, yeah, that is their <laughs> yes. song. Actually, that, that, Alan, I remember at your wedding, the yeah. band played Run for the Hills. I mean, they were like a bluegrass <laughs> band, but they played Run for the Hills. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that yeah. band was great. I guess I maybe I do know, if that's on there. I, I know that one song, but probably nothing more. Okay, well, yeah, that's so. We'll look forward to to Iron Maiden next week. Listen along with us. I'm excited to give that my very first listen ever. So exciting stuff. Hopefully it it turns out. Join us if you can. If you think we're totally cracked or think we're terrific, whatever you happen to think, feel free to shoot us an email over at one thousand and one album complaints at gmail. That's one thousand and one the number at album complaints at gmail we will respond to it in kind and enjoy hearing your thoughts and taking them into our brain pans that is all we have for this week oh i should mention all the various songs we we referenced on this that aren't on zz tops trace ombres we'll throw on a playlist where it's in the notes of this episode hope you can join us again next week and for 1001 album complaints i've been rob i've been phil I've been Alan. And I'm Adam. Boosh. <laughs>